You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Rewinding to December of 2017, we re-release a slightly revised podcast of an episode you might have missed. Episode 24, Automation, Embracing or Displacing? The world is quite different ever since the robotic uprising of the late 90s. There is no more unhappiness. Affirmative. We no longer say yes. Instead, we say affirmative. Yes, affer- uh, affirmative. Unless we know the other robot really well. If you're feeling like the walls are closing in, you're not alone. And for many of us, they are. The knowledge that used to sometimes take centuries to circulate the globe can literally take seconds now. Automation isn't anything really new. It's been with us for at least since the Industrial Revolution. And in some forms, man has always sought to reduce the amount of work or energy required to do set work. Yes, but think about the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. It wasn't that they were creating technologies that would do something that was already being done more easily. They were creating new technologies, like the automobile was a new technology, basically. Yes, Horses were gone in that sense, and now you're building cars, which is a brand new technology. And at a time when the cities were crowded, were teeming with people who needed work, Mm -hmm. didn't really have work. So they were able to absorb these workers into this new industrial revolution very willingly, even with the long hours that were given to them and the low pay and the child labor. They were all willing to jump in into this new world because it was new. It was a new thing. Coincided with the urban creation. Yeah, with urban development. It was almost required to absorb all the shift from the agricultural society to the urban right. areas. Right. You know, in an agricultural society, efficiency is not as important as in an urban setting, in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, time is a different animal in an urban setting. Things have to be more efficient because of the crowding of people in the society. So the Industrial Revolution made life more efficient in the city and gave people jobs who needed them. Now it's a different story in a way. Okay, so that's really what we want to talk about. It's a different story why the automation process is the same, but the situation is very different. Right. Well, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, when the Industrial Revolution kicked in, people who would have, say, grown up on the farm and would have learned to work with their hands on the land... Mm -hmm. and on the machinery of farming, could take to an assembly line at Ford putting together Model Ts because they could work with their hands. Mm -hmm. And so handwork was still very much important uh, during the early Industrial Revolution. Even though there was machinery now, uh, there was still a lot of handwork to be done. Whereas now, we're not talking handwork, we're talking Mind work. Right. In fact, the distinction is that recent developments in uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, and machine learning have essentially put us on what they call the cusp of a new automation age. Yeah, machines building machines. And robots and computers can only perform a range of routine physical work. They can do activities better and more cheaply than humans, but they're also, as uh, this article stated, increasingly capable of accomplishing activities that include cognitive capabilities once considered too difficult to automate successfully, such as tacit judgments, sensing emotion, or even driving. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, as we talked about earlier today, in preparation for this podcast, white collar workers are also being affected. The ones who would normally be developing apps, applications, for example. Well, there are applications that can develop applications. Yes, right? yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the distinguishing marks in that in prior technological shifts or changes in automation, generally speaking, it was the working class that was most affected Mm -hmm. in the sense that many of their jobs became redundant due to, i.e., a machine taking over from a horse. But today, it's more a factor of everyone's life will be changed, but it's a matter of degree. So no one is impervious to this change. Yeah, in in the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, the upper class would not be affected that much by that Industrial Revolution. And the lower, lower class also, because Mm -hmm. they're beneath it. It was all those people in the middle who needed to work to make a living who jumped into the revolution. Okay, fine. But now, as you say, it affects everyone. Rich, poor, high, low. You have to be connected into this world of ours, of the new automation, let's say, Mm -hmm. or you're pushed to the edges. The numbers are pretty staggering. The estimates are, and there's a thing called the McKinsey Report. It's the McKinsey Global Institute, which is highly recognized as one of these think tanks. And uh, they're estimating that 800 million people worldwide will be shifted by the year 2030. In other words, 800 million people will no longer have those jobs available to them, and they'll have to transition to something else. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me ask you, mm. so what? So they have to transition to something else. What's the problem with that? The problem isn't so much the transition as the amount of time that you have to transition in. I believe that before people had more time to transition, it was more gradual. I believe that because of the nature of the work, requiring highly skilled, information-based type of work, it's not so easy to transition for people who have little or no education mm-hmm. in that kind of an environment. Because even if you're a white-collar worker, you've had some basics on which to build. Right. But the, the transition is pretty extreme, and the rapidity of change. Yeah. And what's happening, interestingly, though, also, Harry, is that, let me read you this quote from the McKinsey Report, titled, People Increasingly Don't Want to Work. It says a total of 15% of men between the ages of 25 and 54 who should be in their most productive years of contributing to their families and society don't even want to work. That's up from 5% in the mid-60s, and the number has been steadily rising. In the U.S., for example, some 56% of those people receive federal disability payments, averaging about $13,000 which is roughly equivalent to the pay of a minimum wage job after taxes, except that disability comes with free Medicare. Unless those people find ways to develop needed skills, there is not much financial incentive for them to look for jobs. The rest of the people who don't want jobs are mostly early retirees, homemakers, caregivers, or students. And roughly one-third of the 10 million-plus men who have dropped out of the workforce have criminal records, which is often a barrier to work. Only about 3-4% are actually discouraged workers who might take a job if a job is available. It's one of the reasons why gross domestic products, or GDP, has not increased all that much. So there you have it. A completely different working landscape than you did 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Even with built-in unemployment 
taken into account. That's interesting. So, I mean, people are making a conscious decision to opt out of the revolution, let's say. Back 100 years ago, when Ford, for example, created a new model of car, they would have changed their technology in the plants, in the factories, but not so dramatically that the workers couldn't adjust and learn the new systems. Mm -hmm. But once you get from mechanical to digital, it's a revolutionary leap. It's an evolutionary leap. And not everyone is equipped to make that leap or wants to. Some people are just averse to it. They just cannot wrap their minds around it. For example, I can't wrap my mind around HTML. Yes, that's a very good example, actually. At all. I can't get a handle on it. It's a foreign language I don't want to learn. (laughs) Right. You have a resistance to it. Yeah. That's a big part of the problem that we face today is that things have gone to the point where now people are resisting because they not only see it as something escalating too quickly, they see it as an infringement. Yeah. But not every job requires knowledge of HTML or knowledge of how apps work. But most all jobs now require basic computer skills. Mm -hmm. Fundamental computer skills are required even on my job, which is very physical, but it's a computerized cash system. There's a computer there to search uh, for products and for search the net. These skills, quote unquote, you learn them by osmosis anyway. You just learn them day to day to day. So when it comes to a job that requires some basic computer skills, they're already in place. So do you think virtually anyone could learn to do what you do? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But here's the thing. I've got a sore neck that's constant. I've got stiff shoulders that are constant. I've got a chronic injury in my left wrist that won't go away because of the work. My knees are not happy. My feet are constantly tired and sore. And I ask myself often, is that what work is about? Is work there to basically deplete our energy and our bodies every day for a lifetime and then we die? Is that what work is supposed to be about? Mm. And a lot of it is, it seems, just to put bread and butter on the table. Mm-hmm. As an artist, I find there's something tragic in that. There's, some, there's a sadness built into that fundamental reality that we've got now, uh, where if you don't work, you starve. So if you extend that thought, wouldn't the automation process be a plus in your view, given that a lot of the discomfort or pain that you experience is due to a lot of repetitive functions? Well, sure. The issue is that if technology came along that could do the physical parts of my job, I would be out of a job. Ah. I would not be needed anymore. So now what? (laughs) I'm useful because of my physical presence is the point. But then if I offer you the automated process that eliminates a lot of the pain that you're experiencing, then on the other side, you're saying, well, yeah, that might be nice, but then I won't have a job. So which is worse? Well, 15% of people, as you say, have decided working is worse. And also, I think there are a percentage of those people who are working, but in areas where the recompense just isn't there. But they are working. They're working hard in different ways. They're volunteering. They're working in art. They're struggling musicians who are living on nothing. They're students uh, going over to to Paris to and living in a closet uh, while they're studying to make their way in the world, not that concerned about money. There's a lot of people who aren't as concerned about the things and the acquisition of things 
in the world. There are people who are not greedy for things in the world, and it's just part of their nature. And we have to recognize that too and not expect them all to be absorbed into this machine uh, called the economy. We know that automation is going to eliminate a lot of jobs as we know them today. That does not mean that other jobs aren't going to open up. The struggle is the transition. Right. How many of us will be able to adapt and how many of us won't? I think that's the big fear. And it's always been a fear from the beginning of time. It's not like it's something new. I think it's just a matter of degree now, mm -hmm. uh, more than the actual occurrence, because people have always had to adjust. When the car was invented, there were millions of people that were involved with horses, anything connected to horses, whether it was cleaning manure on the streets or putting horseshoes on their hooves. It was an industry. Yeah, the question, though, I have is, who is responsible? Who has the power to force these changes on people? And can we not, as a population, as a society, say no to some of these changes that are affecting us so profoundly? You can say no in many ways, I believe. Uh, oh, a lot oh. of people will say, well, how significant is that? By choices that you make, all these things that are happening, automation, increased productivity, et cetera, et cetera. There's the obvious demand part of it, but it's also the way we live. We're introducing more and more people into a style of living that we've acquired here in North America. There are now billions of people that are aspiring to live the way we've lived for the last 30, 40 years. The very nature of that situation sets up this whole productivity profit model that must continue at full burn. Mm -hmm. So unless we decide that we don't have to go there, it's going to just continue. So we always go back to this powerlessness. As long as the masses feel powerless, it will sustain the way it is because the people in control or it's no longer just a person in control. It's now a system. A yeah. system that has adapted mm -hmm. and shaped itself to our demands. And I would say that there are no more the masses. There are no more the masses as in 1917 Russia mm -hmm. that clamored and took over and created the Russian Revolution. There are no more the masses that do that. There are marches, there are pockets of people who stand up and say no to certain things, mm -hmm. certain changes in society, like technology or whatever, but very rare. And because we're so isolated now, because of technology, <laughs> we lack the wherewithal to actually get together as communities. Ironic, isn't it, that we're more isolated when the internet and technology has completely opened the landscape? Yeah, very ironic. And that in many ways, we've become more subservient to the system. Mm -hmm. As you say, we can individually make some changes, but uh, I would argue that as a society, it's much more difficult to stand up to these mega changes. And therefore, who's in control? Well, Google, Microsoft, Apple, who's the... Amazon. Phone? Amazon. They're the ones who are dictating the changes and dictating how we are going to be living our lives. Let's assume that you are powerless. Let's assume that you can't beat the system. What's the alternative? The alternative, at the very least, is to protect yourself, wouldn't you say? You're right. So if you begin that process, if you begin to think on that level, in other words, let go of what you feel you have no control over and begin to focus on the things that you can control to some degree. So you can control how you eat. You can control what shows you watch. You can control what products you buy. 
If everyone did that, things would change. We're not used to taking control, though. I know. We're used to being fed. We're used to being told what to think, told what, what's good to buy. So what do you think overall, Harry? Automation a plus or a minus? <laughs> <laughs> I would actually say automation is an old-fashioned word more suitable to the Industrial Revolution, the early Industrial Revolution, than to what's going on now. I would say digitization is what's going on now, not so much automation, because everything pretty well is automated already, but now it's becoming digitized but digitized in itself is more of a kind of a code word because the automation process in our daily lives means the actual implementation of things being done without human intervention. Mm-hmm. So the digitization would be coding and so on and, and the involvement in making those changes. But the actual processes themselves are a factor of taking away the human element. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, as the say the digitization of books happened in libraries, Mm -hmm. librarians lost their jobs because people can just go online and search up these books themselves. So that's Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. The digitization function has also, as part of automation, has dumped people off the work wheel as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a mixed bag, I guess, is the answer. But you notice, though, in this conversation, how whenever we talk about this, it always goes back to economics. Of course. We focus always on economics. So maybe that's what needs to change more than the automation process or the digitization. It's more our view of economics as to how we make that work. Yeah, but how do you separate the notion of work from the notion of economics? It's very difficult to tease that apart. They're mm. so inseparably connected now. You have to right? go back to our last podcast on the value of work. Mm-hmm. And rethink that, Mm -hmm. perhaps. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to make some changes. Mm -hmm. Unless you change what you mean by economics. And what I mean by that is, are you going to measure economics only in terms of financial gain or loss? Or are you going to measure economics also in terms of the happiness quotient for people, the health quotient? Uh, How much of that is a factor? In other words, what dollar value would you put to a physically healthy society, to a mentally healthy society. What's that worth to you? What's it worth to us? Yeah, to us is the question. So education, as you always come back to, is critical to educate people as we're growing up as to what the true nature of work and productivity is and should be in society. It's not just about money. It's about how we see each other. It's how we value a human life. And I'm not trying to be, you know, airy-fairy about it. I just like to look at it from a positive perspective. There's sweeping arguments about who's good and who's bad. I'd like to get away from this good-bad thing and just focus on a broader understanding that we all share in the ups and downs mm-hmm. of whatever we collectively create. Of course. I mean, the, the worker on the floor in the factory has to realize and acknowledge that the CEO and the whole cadre of people who are running that company are also, quote-unquote, workers. They're working towards some end, many of the ends of which relate to that worker on the floor and what they need in their lives as well. They're all trying to support families and lifestyles and stay connected Mm -hmm. in different ways to society. So, yeah, it's not us and them. It is we. So are you offering art as perhaps a 
balance to yeah. our sense of hopelessness mm -hmm. uh, in being bombarded by technology, automation, etc. Sure, because everyone is equal who listens to a piece of music or looks at a painting or watches a dance. Everyone mm -hmm. is equal. It doesn't matter that my neighbor is the king of Siam. My other neighbor on the other side is living in the streets of Calcutta. We're all the same in the presence of great art. So it's a great equalizer, and it's a great salve for the sore necks and the sore knees and the, the, the problematic wrists and hands and all the physical pains of our everyday workaday world. Mm -hmm. So that's what art can do and can help us with. So it's not automation or technology in itself that's the problem. Perhaps it's our obsession with it and our preoccupation with it. Yeah, and how much time we give to it as compared to other less lucrative activities. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to wish you a safe and enjoyable holiday season. Well, thank you very much. But really, it's falling on slightly deaf ears because uh, I have no family. Oh. I was actually created by the Montezuma Robotics Company. <laughs> I am an automation. So have yourself a very, merry, 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 Okay. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.